Hi folks, Daniel Mullins here. Thank you so much for supporting Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Before we start with today's episode, I want to invite you to join Ty and myself for a very special event coming up in Raleigh, North Carolina during the 2019 World of Bluegrass hosted by the International Bluegrass Music Association. On Friday, September the 27th, we will be recording a live podcast with special guest Alan Mills. Alan Mills is a beloved member of the bluegrass community, founding member of the legendary bluegrass band The Lost and Found, and a founding member of the International Bluegrass Music Association. I know we'll have a ton of fun, we'll laugh, and we'll learn from a real bluegrass legend. And you are invited to join us 10.30 a.m. at the Raleigh Convention Center in Raleigh, North Carolina on Friday, September the 27th. We'll be at the workshop stage and we hope that you'll join us for a live podcast recording as we sit down with bluegrass legend Alan Mills, a 2019 recipient of IBMA's Distinguished Achievement Award. That's Friday, September the 27th, 10:30 a.m. Join us for a live podcast recording. And now, on to the next episode of Walls of Time. Thank you. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is sponsored by Hoosier Devil, supporting and promoting roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, who incidentally is one of the hardest working people I know, Hoosier Devil offers a variety of services including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit the team on social media at HoosierDevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Hoosier Devil. Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Here in part two of Mike Bubb's conversation with host Daniel Mullins, we hear again from this sideman extraordinaire as he talks about his time with the Del McCurry Band, his journey with the band as they broaden the bluegrass fan base, and his ventures into new musical projects. Mike is known as one of the most sought-after bass players in Nashville, and you will hear why Mike has become an important artist in the bluegrass country and roots music genres based on both his skill and his easygoing attitude and intelligence. Let's rejoin Mike and our host Daniel Mullins backstage in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, so I've got to ask, Mr. Bob, how did you get the job with the Del McCurry Band? Uh, with Del McCurry, well, uh, we had been here in Nashville for a couple of years, and um, our band, Weary Hearts, we spoke about earlier, we'd actually played a few shows with Del, and uh, I think we opened for him at the Birchmere once, uh, and uh, that was after we moved to Nashville. And so I kind of gotten to know Ronnie and Rob a little bit, and uh, they, would, they seemed like they would come to town and get dropped off by Del. And uh, he would come back in two weeks and pick him up or a week, you know, like the next weekend on his way back through or whatever. And so we would hang out a lot, you know, doing late nights at the Station Inn. We used to do a lot of uh, all-nighters down there, uh, just jamming and, you know, drinking beer and general shenanigans. And uh, eventually uh, they played a, a, a festival here in um, Nashville at the Opryland Park. Uh, they had a bluegrass festival there, and I was out there and was talking to Ronnie, and he said, hey, he said, my mom and dad are um, looking at property down here. They're thinking about moving here. And he said, I don't think we're going to have a bass player or a fiddle player with us then, so we're, we're going to need a bass player. And I said, man, put me on that short list. I said, I would love to play in this band. And he, was, he had already thought about me uh, doing that, so – uh in the meantime i uh this is like in the spring of 91 and um in the meantime um i started playing banjo with larry cordell uh he had a regular wednesday night gig here in town with glenn duncan and bill monroe would come every week too after church he'd eat dinner and then he would get up and play the second set and um so uh cord had been there for a while but he'd kind of gone through some different band personnel so um, we started playing up there and then he, lo and behold, he got a record deal with Sugar Hill to cut some of these songs. And, uh, it was what bluegrass was needing at that time, which was some new material. And, uh, and he had some just killer songs and he had his connection through Ricky Skaggs and people knew him through the highway 40 blues. And cause all of his songs kind of cross over from country to bluegrass real, real easily. And, uh, so anyway, this became like a thing up there at the Bell Cove club, you know, Wednesday nights, you go see Cordell and then, 
Um, we'd hear these fantastic songs that he was writing, and then Bill Monroe would be there. You know, and you could hang out and talk to Bill or play with him. They'd get anybody up to play with Bill just to have the chance to do it. You know, and uh, so anyway, I made a record on. I played banjo on that record with Larry Cordell. That's kind of the last banjo thing that I did, and uh, with uh, Larry and, and Glenn Duncan called Lonesome Santa Time, and that song was actually one of the very first songs of the year in the IBMA Bluegrass Awards. But anyway, so this is all happening, and then I go to then I go to Japan for three months, and I'm still in touch with Ronnie. And I'm like, hey man, what's going on with the move down to Nashville? And he goes, well, we don't know what's happening. You know, they've been down there and looked a few times, but everything in the McCurry entourage moves very slowly and deliberate. So um, you know, I went to I went to Japan for three months. I played with Larry Cordell for a couple of months, and then. Uh, Around Spigma time, February of uh, of '92, uh, uh, Ronnie moved to Nashville. He was the first one to get down here of the family. He moved here first. And at that time, Mike Compton had been playing with our Tuesday night band, and uh, he'd moved to New York, took a job up there doing something, and um, so Ronnie became our new mandolin player on Tuesday nights. And that's when we actually went to playing every Tuesday night with the band, the Sidemen, which was uh, Ronnie, Terry Eldridge. Uh, myself, Gene Wooten, Larry Perkins, and Jimmy Campbell. I'm sure y'all had no fun at all, right? <laughs> no, no fun. And we had, uh, you know, our door guy was a guy named a legendary guy here in Nashville named Ed Dye, who was uh, people might remember him from uh, the Bluegrass Band, which was a band with uh, that Butch Robbins had with uh, Alan O'Brien in the '80s, and that band sort of morphed into uh, the Nashville Bluegrass Band because Mike Compton was with them as well. Oh. And uh, that was the thing that they did before the Nashville Bluegrass Band was formed. Uh, Blaine Sprouse played with them too. And uh, anyway, uh, Ed Dye was our—he was our entertainer guy. He was our vaudeville act, you know. And he would take the door money, and then he would jump up on stage and play the bones and sing and do crazy stuff and basically get everybody's attention, you know, and enter- entertain everybody. So we had a full, we had a you full had the, show. The whole thing going. Yeah, and uh, so so Ronnie started playing with us every Tuesday. We started the regular thing then, and I think about that time is when Jason started playing with Dell. Like the first, Jason was playing with him before I was joined him, and then finally it came around. They finally bought a place down here. It took a full year for them to kind of settle into where they wanted to move to, buy a house, and make their way here and so around memorial day weekend of 92 i went and played in uh, beaver pennsylvania with them and at that time they had the families of tradition record out which yeah. was the parmley's the, the parmley McCur- that's a great album and they were doing these shows we did a bunch of festivals uh after that after i joined them that were those shows you know and me and dale perry would just you know pull up a lawn chair and watch david <laughs> play the bass uh but uh anyway that was the first show i played and, and ronnie and i drove up there and he had a little hyundai and we drove up there to pennsylvania from nashville and i didn't take a bass i borrowed david's bass um and played the show with dell and then he said uh, well we'll use you next week if you want to <laughs> and um that's how i started with him and me and ronnie drove home from there back to nashville Ron- dell went up back to pennsylvania we went back to Nashville, and the transmission went out in Ron, Ronnie's car, and we ended up driving the last, I don't know how far, maybe from Cincinnati uh, in, like, second gear. I mean, the, the, That's like five hours. We barely made it home. <laughs> we barely made it back. We just basically wrung out the transmission on that car. He had to buy a new car the next week, or another car. Wow. Anyway, that's how I got started <laughs> with them. Um, and uh, then eventually uh, Dell moved to Nashville, and – and then we were sort of on our way, you know. Uh, Jason was 19. He'd just really been playing the fiddle for maybe two, two and a half years. Just with, uh, what, with the Goins brothers, right? He played with uh, the Goins brothers, yeah. And uh, actually learned to play the fiddle, you know, with the intention of playing with Del McCurry. That was his, really his dream, you know. And met him here at Spigma, I think, the year before. And then the next by the next year, he was playing in the band with him. So. For, for people that don't know, how significant was – the McCurry's family move to Nashville in the development of, of, of that band and, and being able to, to break through into what we now know as, you know, Dell. Yeah. The whole phenomenon that is yeah. the Del McCurry sound. Well, you know, uh, I think his main intention was to get his boys established down here in Nashville. And, you know, 
if music was what they were going to pursue, uh, they might as well go down. You know, as Eddie Stubbs says, if you want to eat, you got to go where the food is. And so it just made sense that uh, Dell was basically retired from working uh, in the woods, you know, and was playing music full time. And I think uh, Jean was able to take an early retirement from her job. So um, it all worked out good, you know, that they could come down here and uh, and just sort of see what develops, you know. Uh, they had been with Lance Roy for a long time, and then they got with Keith Case. And um, Keith, you know, as you go up the booking agency ladder, you start working more outward-type gigs and that sort of thing. Um, and they came down here and, you know, hired two new musicians and sort of reshaped the band a little bit and and uh, took off from there. And what we really needed to do was just play together because – you know, I was pretty green. I was 24 years old when I started with Dell, and or maybe 25, maybe 26. C92, yeah, I was 26, or turned 26 that first year. And uh, you know, I just had never really. I mean, I, I just never had an experience like that. You know, they they have their own sound, their own rhythm that they play to, naturally. You know, and so you just sort of get pulled into that, and. Um, we developed by playing a lot, you know, we played a lot of gigs and, and it's, you know, it's interesting. You, you look at, um, um, uh, when people say, you know, Flat and Scruggs greatest band ever. Well, you think about how much they played together. They played every day. They either had a TV show or radio show, the Grand Ole Opry or a performance of some kind practically every day of the week. Cause they would always come back to play the Opry, but they would go out and play these, you know, they were on a TV junket every week. They would go, from this town to that town to, to do a, a live television show. And bands don't have that opportunity to play that much anymore. You know, Even the, when you look at like the 75 New South Band, same thing. They're playing in the Holiday Inn. Yeah, they played every night. Every yeah. every night. Yeah, there's a great book called Outliers, if you've ever seen it. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I think, wrote it. And basically, it's about how um, certain instances in people's lives, uh, particularly their birthdays. So the first study he made was birthdays like, if you're born at a certain time of the year, um, then you're going to be, when you start playing hockey or baseball or football, there's a time that's the cutoff where you're either the smallest guy because you're the closest to the season or you're the bigger guy because you're uh, eight, ten months older than everybody else that's later in the yeah. in the, um, in the the season and calendar. Like the cycle, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, like, if you go, say, you know, they, he discovered this at a, at, a, at a youth hockey all-star game. And his wife said, look, all their birthdays are within 30 days of each other, these guys, these kids that are on the all-star team. So it's like the Beatles. They had this unbelievable opportunity where they played every night all kinds of music, six hours a night, night after night after night after night, you know, to where they could just play together and breathe together. And Flatten Scrubs was much the same way. They just played so much that that's what makes it so good, you know. And um, with Dell, we kind of had that opportunity. We played a lot, you know. We just went out there and did it, you know, got out there. And not everybody has that um, that advantage, but um, at that time, I think he just really wanted to get out there and play more. So we just played. We played everywhere. And no matter how we had – whatever we had to do to get there, we would do it, you know. And it just kind of grows off of that. And it was a big – you know, coming to Nashville was – probably has everything to do with Dell's success because not long after that, we got another booking agent who was a bigger company, Bobby Cudd, uh, at Monterey artist at that time. And, uh, he was the first one to get us into all of these, uh, college bars. Like, uh, we played every college town in the South, Oxford, Mississippi, Athens, Georgia, um, Spartanburg, South Carolina, Gainesville, Georgia, uh, Florida, we we played all these towns where all of the touring acts would play these, you know, mostly dive bars. Um, in Nashville, we have the Exit Inn, um, which is not really a dive bar, but it's it's where all the touring bands that come through and play college, sort of college uh, crowds, um, that's where they play. And so we played all of those. And, um, and it just all, it all clicked, you know. Yeah. Then eventually... He got a manager, you know, and finally got a manager that was able to pull all these pieces together, you know. And kind of centralize all these moving parts into one unique vision. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, so for one one thing at a time, we did one thing after another. We did the, we shot a, our, you know, one of the first bluegrass music videos. At that time, to get on CMT in the late '90s, you had to have real film. You couldn't shoot it on video. Um, and back then, we made all of our records on tape. You know, we were still recording to tape through the '90s, and um, all of that digital technology has gotten so much better now. You know, you can shoot on on uh, digital video now, but back then it had to be on film. And so we did, you know, uh, so my level not change was the first. Very expensive then, right? Yeah, well, they found a way to do it inexpensive. They bought a bunch of um, of uh, short pieces of film that had been edited off of bigger reels. And then if you've ever seen My Level Not Changed, the video, it's on uh, YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've seen, I've seen we it We changed clothes times. like 17 times in this video, and it's all those little short pieces of film with us, you know, shot of us wearing different clothes and then all edited together you know by hand basically now you do it all digitally but that was all done with you know in a in a you know working in a real film you know editing suite or whatever you you mentioned okay playing all the college bars and playing all these unique venues that were maybe having bluegrass for the first time or first time in a long time and definitely playing music in front of a lot of audiences that had never been exposed yeah, to well, bluegrass before. Yeah, well, a couple of things that happened in there too. Uh, Jerry Garcia died, uh-huh. and at that point we did see a lot of people uh, coming around, coming from that scene, you know. Uh, mainly in the taper scene, like these guys that record shows and that kind of thing. That, that whole started seeing a little bit of that. Underground that's thing. a whole other yeah. culture that's part of the music, you know. Um, and started seeing more of those guys and and getting to be friends with them. Uh, and we would see more of that. Um, another thing too, what uh, we we went and played for. Uh, uh, we went and played at a big festival that Fish put on. We. So the Steve Earle thing had a big impact because the first thing we did with Steve was we played Farm Aid, which was this, you know. That's as big as it gets. Just gigantic yeah. festival of music in uh, Chicago and this big outdoor, shit, what they call a shed, you know, um, a venue. And uh, what was really cool about that was uh, we had made this record, hadn't come out yet, but Steve brought us up to play uh, Farm Aid. And we're gonna do it on one microphone. <laughs> and the place is huge. I mean, it's just it was it was pretty funny. But anyway, you know, we're in the bus. And we're looking out the windows, and we're just seeing, you know, wow, it's Neil Young's bus. And Neil Young had this bus that looked like a locomotive, and he he has a son who um, uh, is in a, in a wheelchair, so he's got this crane that comes out the side of the bus and lowers him out of the bus on on his uh, on his uh, wheelchair scooter thing, you know, and. Uh, and all of these people are there, you know. And then we look out, and Ronnie says, oh, those are the guys from Fish, the band Fish. Yeah. Well, we had known about them because there was an interview um, with Trey where it was like, you know, what are you listening to right now? And he said it was this the Del McCurry record that came out right before I joined the band called, uh, uh, Deep, uh, not Deeper Shade Blue, uh, Blue Side of Town. And there's actually a Steve Earle song on there, but there's a song called Beauty of My Dreams on there that um, that Fish, when they went through sort of a bluegrass phase, picking in- bluegrass instruments on their show, they did that song. So they, we had this weird tie-in, and so they were out there looking. They're like, they're like seeing Dell's bus. That's Del McCurry's bus. And so we went out and we met those guys, you know, and got started a friendship with them. And eventually... We went and played uh, their festival uh, in Oswego, New York. We played in front of about sixty or seventy thousand people. Wow. Sat in with them, and, and that whole that was just purely by chance. Well, oh, I mean, the, the, there was the, a tie-in. The, the, the meeting that That's was the I mean. tie-in, and then the, you know, through management and our booking agent, they were able to uh, capitalize on yeah. that relationship. You well, know, I, I mean, uh, the fact that they just happened to be Del McCurry fans and and you know right. Ronnie clearly had been listening to Fish apparently cuz he recognized them you know like yeah. so there that was by chance yeah. you know th- then they just worked out where y'all could work together Yeah and we had met event. this guy from uh, Atlanta named Colonel Bruce Hampton we've been around him a little bit at some festivals and he was tied to those guys and a bunch of guys that played with him cuz he kind of had bluegrass instrumentation in his band Aquarium Rescue Unit I don't know if you ever familiar with any of that kind of music but uh it's like a atlanta georgia jam band okay. stuff a lot of those guys that played in his band were friends with these guys and fish and kind of helped them 
uh, in, in their bluegrass phase, their bluegrass instrument phase. So anyway, you know, but another thing about Farm Aid that was really cool was we were hanging out in this, it's like a big hangar behind the stage, but all these bands, you know, it's all electric bands. We were the only bands that could just get our instruments out and just start jamming. So we ended up doing that with Steve. So we're in the middle of this big giant room, this big, it's like a hangar, and there's all of these people around us, like this huge crowd of people around us. And uh, Paul Schaefer was there standing next to uh, Steve's manager, and uh, he was just totally digging it. And he was just like, this is so cool, you know. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember his manager saying, you know, you got to help us out because we, we, we're going to bring this to the, to the Letterman show. He said, but we need somebody to make sure that say, yeah, bring that, bring that here. And he goes, man, you, you got my endorsement, man. We're going to have this, you know. And so we ended up doing the David Letterman show. And uh, it was a crazy show with, um, it was actually a Nashville-themed Nashville show that night. They had a, nat, uh, a predator read the top ten list, and uh, Biff, the stage manager, came to Nashville and rode around in a flatbed truck with BR five four nine and took oh, a tour wow. of Nashville. And they played that <laughs> with Chuck video. Mead and all those yeah, guys. Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> they're all playing on the back of this flatbed truck with, and Biff's riding around with them, and they're giving them a the tour in Nashville. And then they had a thing called Nashville Quiz, and the, the Letterman Band took Nashville Cats, and they were going Nashville Quiz. <laughs> and uh, they didn't know they weren't at our sound check because when you do those TV shows, the first thing you do is the band that's going to play. They do their sound check first, and then you have them until the rest of the day until the taping happens, while they rehearse everything else for the show. And so we weren't there when the band was there. They didn't hear us. We didn't hear them. And uh, and so they did this Nashville quiz. And then, of course, when we came on, we did Nashville cats, and they were just floored. <laughs> they couldn't believe it. The coincidence of it all, yeah, you yeah. know. <laughs> And uh, I think, uh, yeah, uh, Mike and Susan Drudge were there. They had won a free trip to the Letterman show, the Nashville Letterman show. And it just happened to be this night that was the Steve Earle and the Del McCurry band there. So it was, it was pretty cool. fellas it's time to care about your hair i was just like you doing my hair meant hairsprays and gels that would either leave my hair crunchy or greasy so what would i do i'd throw in a ball cap on my way out the door and call it a day rather than fool with my hair then i found samson's hair care their hair pomade is the best truly it has a matte finish so your hair doesn't look wet and oily and it's made with essential oils and other all natural ingredients has an all-day hold as well so you can be confident that your hair will will look as good in the evening as it did when you left the house. And it smells great too. Great hair is a staple in bluegrass. Just look at Del McCurry and Larry Sparks. Samson's knows this. That's why they're offering Walls of Time listeners 10% off. Visit samsonshaircare.com and use code bluegrass to save 10% on your order. It's like Samson from the Bible. His hair was legendary and now yours can be too. samsonshaircare.com code bluegrass at checkout to save 10% off the best hair pom you'll ever buy that's samsonshaircare.com code bluegrass and now back to walls of time how did the steve earl opportunity come about uh well um again uh blue side of town there was a steve earl song on there and when they uh, from what i understand when dell cut that song it was too short so they tracked steve down he was in a halfway house somewhere um he was still coming through his recovery of whatever he'd been through and um they, I think Ken Irwin contacted him and said, hey, we're recording in the studio. Anyway, he said, could you write a second verse of this song? And so he faxed one to the studio, and uh, they cut the song. So they, that, that little thing had established. And then uh, when Steve was clear of all of his uh, um, obligations um, after going to jail and you know he had a heroin problem and got through all of that, and he came back to Nashville, and just began writing prolifically, and he was making these records, and um, there was a magazine, which still is, called No Depression, which is like an Americana Roots-type magazine, and uh, so they were doing these one night uh, a month at the Station Inn where they would bring two artists together that were kind of, had never worked together before. Cool. And uh, so they brought us and Steve together, and Steve had, uh, the first record that he made when um, he came back to Nashville was a, a thing called Train of Coming with Norman Blake, Peter Rowan, and Roy Husky and Steve. And it is a fantastic album. If you've never heard it or seen it, you've got to find this record. 
it's got some great songs on there um, that Steve wrote. Uh, a couple of really good Civil War songs, and there's one on there. There's a cover of a Beatles song. I'm uh, I'm looking through you, which is, works out great in acoustic in an acoustic band. So we got put together with Steve, and so that was the material that we learned. We learned a bunch of those songs off of that record, and we played at the station in. And uh, at the end of the night, Steve said, uh, "He said, Dale, I'm gonna write a, I'm gonna write a bluegrass album, and I want you guys to make it with me." And um, he was like, yeah, okay, that sounds good, Steve. <laughs> and we don't, you know, we didn't think much of it. You yeah, because you uh, hear stuff like that all the time. Yeah, 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 write an album. Yeah, okay. Well, within, uh, I would say within three months or less, we were in the studio recording, and Steve had already written most of the record. Wow. And uh, we had started recording, and we'd never really, you know, experienced anything recording like that with him, like we did with him. We stood in a line, and he faced us, and we cut everything live. And there's no... There's no reverb on that record. There's no echo of any kind. It's it's just so dry and compressed, like a rock album would be. So it's like a, I liken it to squeezing a six-piece bluegrass band through a hose. You know, when it comes out, it's just like uh, it's pretty intense. And they, they would listen to these playbacks that you know super loud and something we were not used to at all. So it took a while for us to kind of warm up to the to the sound of it because it was very different than what we would do. You know, in the in the bluegrass just sonically, world. yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it was fun. I really enjoyed working with Steve. Um, we learned a lot from him. You know, we all did in different ways, I'm sure. I don't think the management got along too well, and that was probably uh, the biggest, you know, drawback. He came, you know, with there's friction there, then it just kind of trickles down to everything else. But as being a bass player on the tour, I loved it. I was, I had a ball. We'd never had catering. We had a nice tour bus and, and – uh, you know, we're playing to sold-out houses every night. It was just a huge event, this show, you know, when it finally actually got on tour. So uh, it was like a three-and-a-half-hour show. And, you know, we'd never been around an activist before. And Steve is a vocal activist who uses the stage as a platform for politics. And um, if you're not prepared for that, then, you know, it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard thing to get used to. Uh, because it's, did that make y'all feel uncomfortable having not been on stage when someone been doing that before? Well, my not for me. You know, at the time he had a, a song in a movie called Dead Man Walking about uh, a guy on death row, and at the time he was out driving vans and involved with a, um, a, a group of people that were against the death penalty, victims of murder that were against the death penalty. So he would go in and out of the tour and go join up with these people and help them do their thing. And uh, But his part of the show, when he would do that song, would be a solo part of the show. And then he would, you know, he would talk about it, you know. So when you get a room full of people that are these hardcore bluegrass fans who are just sort of scratching their head going, you know, oh, we'll see what this is all about. Then you got the Steve Earle rockers going, you know, what's up with this bluegrass thing? You're going to have a big mixed crowd of people in there. And Steve knew it from the beginning because he's the one that said, don't worry about the people that don't get what we're doing. Let's get the people that do get it and concentrate on them. So, you know, in doing that, you're going to, some people are not going to be, um, they're not going to, uh, you know, like the music or the, it's a controversial thing, you know. And uh, so I think for the first time ever, Dell probably got mail from his longtime fans that just said, you know, why, why are you out here with this guy? You know, not only is he, um, you know, wants to do away with the death penalty, but he's, uh, you know, uses uh, profanity on stage and all this kind of stuff. And I think it really hurt, you know, to have that kind of criticism from his longtime fans. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I think in the moment, none of that stuff really bothered Dell. Yeah. Uh, it was just that when he started hearing from people, um, I think he probably had some second thoughts. And then whatever was happening up in the upper management issues, dealing with the business part of it, um, you know, it, it was it was not uh, – it was, it was short-lived, you know. We did it for about a year with him. But there's a, a great TV show we did called uh, Sessions on West 54th. And that's one of the best things that we did with Steve. Really? Uh, it was, it was uh, kind of a cool show. It's kind of like uh, uh, Austin City Limits, where it's a live musical performance – and uh, really, it, it was pretty cool. It was uh, at, at the old um, CBS Columbia Studios in New York City where okay. Frank Sinatra made a bunch of his records. And 
you know, they filmed, it was like a soundstage for film and, and uh, recording. So pretty neat place. And uh, the guy, I remember the guy come up to me, he said, uh, this real New York uh, director says, uh, so uh, tell me about this one microphone thing and how's this going to work? <laughs> and I said, well, I said, what's great about it is I said, everything's going to happen at that microphone. I said, so whether you're looking from this camera or that camera or this camera up here, I said, it's all going to come to you right here. So you just pick your angles as it's going and just point everything right there. I said, that's where it's all going to happen. It's just so funny, kind of back when we were playing on one and two microphones to get around these people and never, act like they've never seen anything like that before, yeah. you know. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't like y'all are from outer space. That or, or just, it's, you know, it's not as hard as it, yeah. you might think it sounds. You <laughs> like, know, they, so. like they said, y'all going to pick doing handstands, right. you know. Because <laughs> usually when you do TV, you know, like if you do one song, you rehearse it for the cameras, and they get all the camera angles lined out and the calls on the intercom and where the camera moves to, when it's going to pull back. You know, they rehearse all that stuff. But on a live performance like that, the rehearsal's for it a little bit more extended because it's a full set of music. But I just told the guy, I said, you don't have to rehearse anything. You just call up whatever camera you want. You know, you can pull back. You can go in tight. I said, it's all going to happen right here. I said, how easy can that be? <laughs> and uh, it's, it's pretty cool. It came off pretty good. Presenting bluegrass music uh, to audiences that have probably never heard it before. What was the reaction like, and what was that experience like? Knowing that, that's the best kind of audience there is. Really? Fresh ears. Uh, I always tell people if you were going to play Del McCurry's music for somebody and say, "Hey, listen to this. There's no anything about bluegrass," and you go, "Let me play this record," and uh, you would get a mixed reaction from a variety of people. But if somebody came to see his show in person and got the whole picture with the music and the way that he entertains people, you come away, I would say, 99% of the time a fan. Absolutely. Because you can put it all together, you know. We played the very first Bonnaroo Festival, and we were, uh, we were a late addition to the festival, so we weren't on any programs or anything. But somehow or another, word got out, and we played in this giant uh, tent structure and uh, when we walked out on that stage, there was probably 3,500 people sitting on the ground waiting for us. And uh, the place just came to life. And we played, uh, you know, for all of these young people that just, I mean, they're not all young people at Bonnaroo, but, you know, th that scene. And, um, you know, that's when we really started seeing those things where people outside of, you know, the Internet's an amazing thing. You know, you play on stage with Fish, you play three songs with those guys, and everybody in there world knows about it you know how do you how much it's uh, like promotion you can't buy how much of a role do you think the internet played in the growth of the del mccurry band because i guess i never really thought about that that your trajectory really hit as the internet really started coming into everybody's homes not just yeah. a select few and and that really started do you yeah, think yeah. that played, grew played a significant a role absolutely yeah i mean i saw you know thank god for the internet because if you're into traditional bluegrass old-time string band music Hot jazz of the 30s, quilting, whatever, you know. It's out there. Foxtails on bases. Uh, yeah, and you can find it. It's out there. And if you want to be involved, involve yourself in it, learn about it, be a part of it, participate, you can do that now. You can find it, you know. Why do you think so many bluegrassers, both fans and industry members, are slow to adapt to technology? I don't know. Instead of embracing it and using it as a tool. Well, I always tell people, I said, embrace technology. Otherwise, it's going to leave you behind, you know? Yeah. So we all have to just do the best we can. <laughs> but, you know, for some people, it, it just, uh, you know, they see somebody else and it makes, them look, makes it look so easy, you know? It just, it just seems like as, an, as, a, as a genre and as an industry, bluegrass is slower to catch on on a bunch of technological trends compared yeah. to other genres, even other smaller genres, not just, you know, mainstream. Yeah. I remember when websites became the big thing, and uh, I think it was Jamie Daly. He had a company, a business, that was a, a web hosting business and developed websites, and all the bands went and got their websites through him, you know. <laughs> I was like, what a racket. He's got, a he's got this whole genre covered right now. I've heard before that, I guess it was the first day that, that Bluegrass Today switched from the blog to Bluegrass Today. They had a, an editorial post up that talked about how what they're able to achieve in having a you know a centralized home for bluegrass news on the web, and they gave all the credit to Frank Gobby because they said it was one of the first world of bluegrasses that there was just on a one of one of the big boards where people put showcase yeah, yeah. flyers up. There was just a clipboard 
and it just said, if anybody wants to keep in touch about bluegrass stuff, put your email here. You're right. And yeah. he start, you know, the Frank, bluegrass L. He started the bluegrass L. The the email bluegrass list. L. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was cool to see that you know he he saw the potential on we can we can network a lot quicker now with this internet thing yeah, than yeah. just relying on waiting until the next time we see each other to tell yeah, it's each really, other stuff. It's kind of funny, you know. I, there's all these other uh, genres of things that you can almost overlay the cultures. Like, uh, like I went to a gun show last week, first one I've ever been to. It's like a swap meet, you know. All these guys have tables full of collectible handguns, rifles, whatever. But you could almost just change out the whole crowd of bluegrass people with those people, and it would be about the same, you know. <laughs> It's just the same. You got the guys that work out of the garage and tinker on stuff, and then same with the bluegrass world. You got guys that tinker on instruments, build instruments, and there's all these different facets of it. But yeah, what's nice is that the internet has tied all this together, you know. And uh, you know, IBMA, the same thing. It's like this big hub, and all this input, you know, can help you with your output of what you're trying to do in the music, you know. So yeah, uh, the bluegrass L was uh yeah the the big chat uh, it was like a chat i guess it came as an email like a yeah uh, email. came as a, a compiled daily email, email whatever. threads or, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i forgot about that Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. And now back to Walls of Time. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen in Bluegrass, both as a music and a business uh, over the past few decades since you got started? Well, uh, I, I see a lot more people like me who are like independent musicians and that freelance with different bands. Um, when I left Del McCurry, I didn't want to attach myself to a moving ship after that again, you know, for a while. And um, I, I've managed to pretty much maintain that, although I work with a lot of the same people and just try to make all the pieces fall together. Um, and I work part time with a bunch of different people. Um, and I can do that here in Nashville. What are some of the biggest advantages uh, to doing that, to maintaining, you know, uh, your independence and being a, a, well, a, a for freelance me, musician? For me personally, it keeps things interesting. And it also, you know, if, if like when I played with Del McCurry for 13 years, I mean, we knew that music just so inside out, you know, that if you ever get to the point where your mind is just wandering to another place when you're playing, then you're, you've been there too long. You know, it's like you just everything's on autopilot, you know. Not always with that band because they were those guys were just so strong and energized. At, you know, when when it was time to play, we would just go out there and and I don't experience that with a lot of bands because we I don't spend that kind of time playing music with everybody. Like I was saying earlier, that having that opportunity of playing all the time and everybody just sort of breathing together and intuitively knowing what's going to happen and to remain to have the same lineup and the continuity for that sustained amount of time. Right. You know, that's also another huge blessing. Yeah, that's that, a hard thing in this day and age. You can probably count this many bands. Uh, you can count uh, on one hand the number of bluegrass yeah. bands that had the same lineup for 13 years straight. You know? I, I remember I told Alan uh, when he started working for Dell, he would use my flight case sometimes. And I'd say, you know, I said, I've been here for 13 years. And I said, 13 years from now, Dell's going to be 80. Now and, he is, and here we are, thirteen years <laughs> later, and he's eighty, and he's still cooking, man. Yeah. I mean, he's just—he's in such good shape for for his age and what what he's spent his life doing. You know, it's pretty amazing. But but business wise, um, you know, there's two ways of doing this this being in this business. If you're in a band, there's all for one, and there's one for all. So if it's all for one, that means we're all together to help this guy 
you know, be as good as he can possibly be. And that's the way it was with Del McCurry. He had four guys, two of them happened to be his sons, but he had four guys that just wanted nothing but the best for that guy musically and respectability and, and integrity or the music, you know, and, you know, we, we, we all contributed songs and to those recordings of the, of that era that really helped Dell develop. And, and you can hear it. If you listen to the very first record we made, which is a deeper shade of blue, you know, Jason's just 19 or 20 years old there. Um, and how his playing just developed over those records. And, but consequently the whole band did, you know, together, and what was great about working with Dell was that he wants everybody to bring something of their personality to it. Like you have the, the repertoire and the music and there's a style and you have to embrace that. But, but he wants you to be yourself too and bring, bring something to it, you know? And, um, that was, you know, really refreshing because there's some band leaders in the all for one, uh, situation where they're going to tell you every note that you're going to play. They're going to tell you what to wear. They're going to tell you, you know. Um, a lot of what happened in the Del McCurry band happened organically. I mean, we all, we knew who the benevolent leader was, but a lot of the um, creative stuff happened sort of organically by all of us contributing to it, you know. And um, so not all bands are that fortunate in those situations. And uh, that was that's something that I really you know, cherish about playing with Dell was that he let us all sort of develop our own place in that band and it all worked good and clicked, you know. And we all had a passion for his music, uh, a common uh, passion for it. And what was nice about it was that we were seeing a lot of good results that next year we're going to do this and this is coming up and we're going to get to do this and we got this happening. And so that's what gave that band longevity. You're always going ahead. Yeah, yeah. we're always, yeah. you know, there was always something over the horizon, you know, and, um, and it's still that way, obviously, because Jason's been there now, uh, 20, what is it? 27 years, I guess. And, you know, that's longer than Curly Ray Klein was with anybody. So amazing. Uh, but anyway, uh, and then there's the other situation, which is, uh, uh, one for all, you know, and that's where everybody is together and we all take, the highs and the lows together financially and emotionally and everything else, you know, um, I always tell people it's easy to get paid for your time in this town. It's hard to get paid for your ideas. And if you have an all for, you know, one for all situation, at least you can get paid for your ideas because you're all going to contribute to the benefits of whatever you're doing, you know, but it's a little bit more of a risk. You know, some people like to have a, more of a structured type of thing where they work for somebody, they know exactly how much they're going to get paid. They don't want to take any risk. You know, we're all entrepreneurs in this business, whether you like it or not, we're all in business for ourselves or we're part of a collective of being in business. And, um, you know, you want to benefit from all your efforts and what you contribute to it, even if it's, um, small pieces of, of ideas and this sort of thing, you know, it's hard to get credit for those things if you're, if you're working for somebody because they tend to get all the credit and you're just a part of the... A cog in a wheel, yeah. A cog in the wheel. And, uh, you know, you can get a little bit more of that if you're in a, in a more um, um, partner type, par partnership type situation. So, I don't know, you know. I've, I've, I've done both. And, um, you know, there's some people that I work for that I don't even ask about the money or whatever. I just want to do it. So I always tell people, I said, just do what you want to do and don't do what you don't want to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's that simple. Some right? people feel like they got to do everything, yeah. you know, and then they complain about it or whatever, you know. Well, just don't do it, you know. But as a bass player, I hardly turn anything down. You know, they say, you play with everybody. And I say, no, I'll play with anybody. There's a distinct difference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not everybody's calling me. <laughs> Women
Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins' hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not overpowering but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code BLUEGRASS at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. And now back to Walls of Time. What have you learned by, you know, as a, as a freelance bass player, essentially, playing with all sorts of different types of music? You play everything from more country-leaning stuff on Mondays to the station end to more hardcore bluegrass like uh, you do with David Peterson to even some out-of-the-box stuff, whether it be country or blues or, or more rock-leaning. Um, how do you think that's helped you grow as a musician? Uh, well, when I left Del McCurry, I thought, well, I'll just jump into another bluegrass situation. And I didn't realize that at the t- in the in the moment of all that that um, there's very few bands, uh, number one of that caliber, and number two that have that kind of um, stature in this business. And mostly those jobs that are in those bands are coveted, and they're they're not readily available. You know, uh, if you look over the years, you see personnel changes and everything. You know, Dell's bands had one personnel change in 26 years. That's pretty strong. But anyway, uh, uh, I thought I would just jump into another, you know, bluegrass band or whatever, and um, I, I wasn't able to do that. So I went to work at Home Depot. I got a day job because it's sort of a little transition from when you go from playing for somebody for 13 years to not playing with them anymore. It takes a while for people to learn about it or at least find a place for you if there is one in the future you know it takes a little time so i worked for home depot for about two years and during that time i just started having these other musical situations that just sort of came to me and i was like wow you know i shouldn't be chasing anything i should just let people come to me and the music will reveal itself you know so uh, that's when I started working with uh, my buddy Sean Camp again. And uh, at that time, he was doing more of an electric thing. And we've sort of, over the years, de- I've played with him now for 10 or 12 years, and we've sort of uh, developed this sort of hybrid band. You know, it's a heavily bluegrass influence, but it's also country and has, you know, it's, it's just uh, it's something for everybody in his music. You know, and I really like playing with him. I enjoy that. And we just, we play here and there. And, um, do a lot of things here in town which are fun um and then i formed a band with uh uh, my buddy john randall who i've known from his bluegrass days and he and his wife we just started getting together with a group of people to jam and to play these songs that they had written that they're kind of non-commercial and um weren't things that they expected to get cut and uh, so we formed a band out of that around these songs called 18 south and a very interesting band because we had John Randall and myself kind of came out of bluegrass. Uh, we have a keyboard player named Jimmy Wallace who grew up um, playing not only in church as a keyboard player and an organist, but I uh, played uh, a lot of blues with a, a Kenny Wayne Shepherd. And since that time, he's worked with all kinds of people here in town. But an amazing, you know, he's like a rock star uh, keyboard player and singer. And then uh, Guthrie Trapp, who uh, also came sort of out of bluegrass. He started on a mandolin and acoustic guitar. And then, um, you know, he was in Jerry Douglas's band for a while, played with Patty Loveless for a long time. And, uh, you know, he's just a, a master of the Telecaster. So you have a guy like that that can just, just absolutely shred on the guitar. And then Larry Adamanuick, who kind of came out of bluegrass as well, worked with Allison Krauss for years and Sam Bush and Emmylou Harris. Um you know, so we had this sort of this great rhythm section. We had these incredible three singers and songwriters, uh, John Randall's wife, Jesse Alexander, who's just, you know, there. she's like the toast of the town as a songwriter and harmony singer. And uh, they're a real, you know, sort of Nashville power couple as far as 
the songwriting and publishing and producing and all those aspects of you know commercial music but this was all on the side side project and it just kind of took off on its own and next thing you know developed into this band we were out i sent out we, we made a ep and i sent out 10 copies of it to different festival promoters that i knew and i think i ended up booking five festivals out of it the next thing you know we're up and running we got a band you know and so we, we didn't play much but we would just play a few festivals here and there and through their connections and everybody's connections we played some really cool gigs um that were just uh, not paid didn't pay well but they sure were in nice places and we got fed well and we had a good time and then they led to another gig that actually paid our way out there and that kind of thing so all these things sort of sort of developed, you know, afterward uh, without really trying very hard. It just came to me. And, um, of course, you know, I love still playing traditional bluegrass. So playing with Dave Peterson is just I get I get to do that, too, you know, at, at the most hardcore of bluegrass. The absolute you know? root yeah. of the tree. As yeah. he likes to call it, uh, no apology bluegrass. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he did a song last night. He goes, I've never heard anybody ever play this song on stage, ever, since 1948. <laughs> but, you know, it's just, um, it's easier for me to be a freelance guy, you know. Um, although I always tell people, I say, if you give me three gigs on that third night, I'll really have it, you know. So you have to be kind of light on your feet. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, don't, I don't play perfect every night if I'm playing with somebody I don't play with all the time. I keep working and doing sessions and making records and stuff, so. Um, I just had the faith that people will call me. <laughs> I don't do a whole lot of self-promotion. We've covered quite a span in our conversation, and one location keeps popping up, and it's a location I know that is really fond of your heart, and you frequent a lot, and that's the Station Inn. Yeah, my home away from home. It is. Oh, <laughs> can you put into the words what the Station Inn has meant for bluegrass music? In this town, you know, it's been consistent, which is, you know, JT's been at that location there for 40 years, over 40 years now. You know, uh, it started out as pretty much 100% bluegrass all the time. When I first came to Nashville and I would go down there to the Station Inn, there wouldn't be a lot of people there. Um, it seemed like Spigma weekend was always the, a, a big weekend. I remember years ago, it used to be Lance Leroy got two nights and Keith Case got two nights. And they would swap <laughs> Thursday and Friday and Friday and Saturday each year. One year Keith would get Thursday and Friday, and then the next year he gets Friday, or, you know, Friday and Saturday, whatever, Wednesday, Thursday. How they broke it up? Anyway, um, those were always big nights, and that was a night you wanted to get down there. You know, was a Spigma weekend, so they'd always have the either the Country Gentleman. I remember there was an era where Allison Krauss always played the Station Inn and um, different different people like that. And uh, whenever the Del McCurry Band would play down there, we'd play there a lot during Spigma weekend as well. Bill Monroe would always come down, sit in with us, and hang out after the Opry and stuff. But uh, there's, there's no other town like Nashville. And, of course, this town requires that we have a venue like that for our music because um, it is represented on the Grand Ole Opry, but on um, a, a grassroots, uh, cultural, and sort of organic level, there's a lot that happens down there at the Station Inn. You know? And it's more than just a beer joint. Uh, and that has music on stage every night. You know, it's a, it's I, I call it the bluegrass fort. You know, it's yeah. Like everybody that hangs out down there can jump in behind the bar and sell a beer to somebody if it gets crowded or whatever. You jump in and help out, taking out the trash or whatever. But at the same time, too, as I've seen, just some amazing music in there that you wouldn't see anywhere else in the world. And just because it's right here in Nashville, and the fact that anybody could walk through the door and 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 they do you know i've seen this amazing people hanging out down there william shatner was there one night seeing mike snyder eating a pizza was, you know <laughs> i mean just if, if somebody's going to come to nashville and they want to you know take me out to hear some real nashville music where they're going to go to the station in period so it yeah. has that it is world famous in that sense and um you know over the years it has kind of tr changed because there was a time when it like i said it wasn't it wasn't packed in there every night. When the Sidemen played in the 90s, when we were sort of our peak years, um, Dirks Bentley was going to Vanderbilt University, and he stumbled in there with his buddies one night and started coming every week. And then he would invite other friends, and they would invite girls to come down there and meet up, and it became this big Vanderbilt hang. They just knew to go to Station Inn on Tuesday nights, and it would be packed full of Vanderbilt kids and bluegrass fans smoking cigarettes and drinking beers and 
hanging with us all night. And uh, we had some epic, epic nights down there with all these people <laughs> because uh, the sidemen would be like a it would be it would become a vacation destination. Like if you're a bluegrass fan, you want to make sure you come through Nashville on a Tuesday so you go to the station in. At the same time, any musicians that were visiting town, say making a record or working on something or doing something, they would come down and hang out with us too and sit in with us. And we, I mean, we hosted everybody from, you know, Jack Green from the Opry to Doc Watson to they, they've all come down there and sang and played with us, uh, with the side men. Bonnie Owens came in one night, sweetest lady in the world, got up and sang uh, Merle Haggard's song with Terry. It was a dream come true kind wow. of thing, you know. And just all those kind of things happening over and over again. Um, I've just seen some great performances down there. Uh, I saw Charlie Leuven in there one night. It was one of the greatest vocal performances I ever saw in my life. I mean, it was just incredible how good he was singing that night. And to me, he sounded like a jazz saxophone player. He was so laid back on the beat and just singing over the top of the music. I was like, Willie Nelson could only dream to sound <laughs> sing like that, you know. Uh, it was so good. But... Um, my buddy Ed Dye, he he coined it the Carnegie Hall of the South. There you go. And um, but in the last fifteen years, um, you know they started bringing more of the roots varieties in there during the week. Tries to keep it bluegrass on the weekends because that's what it's known for. And there's bluegrass most nights there, but uh, they also bring in songwriters and you know, um, more uh, touring bands play in there and that kind of thing. So it's really hard to get booked in there now. He stays booked uh, booked out maybe four or five months in advance, you know. Do you think the Station Inn could be replicated in other cities, or do you think it's just unique to Nashville? Because I feel like that's that's something that I've heard from people before, is if there were more consistent bluegrass venues in other cities, we might that'd be another way to grow outside of the I, festivals. I, I don't think you could do what they do here. I don't know that you could have a venue like this in just any town. Um now, there's a lot of towns that have venues that have a lot of different kinds of music, you know, like the Ark in uh, Ann Arbor, but uh, or the Birchmere or, um, you know, any number of places that has some bluegrass music. But I just don't think there's enough. Uh, but, I, you know, then again, you know, why not? Uh, but I don't know that it would be you could just say specifically a bluegrass venue. OK, because Station Inn is a bluegrass venue and known for that. But it's it's also so much more. Yeah, totally. You know, like it's a, like I say, it's a club. You know, like when we started our 18 South band, I went to when uh, Ann Sawyer's was booking the club. I said, "Hey, I got this new band." I said, "We've almost got 22 songs." I said, "But we like to come down here and play uh, through all of our different types of music that we play. We pulled this crowd together, and then after that, it just sort of became a thing where uh, we would just pack it out. You know, um, so it was a great opportunity to to to." You know, we create something, and now let's put it on stage and fine-tune it, you know? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, the Jerry Douglas test drove the Earls of Leicester down there before he kind of announced to the world what that whole project was yeah. as well, I'm pretty sure, at least yeah, two or I three times. Yeah, I think that idea was uh, stewing for a while, but he had... I think he went and played on Charlie's records, one yeah. of the records. Then the concept came up to play all Flatten Scruggs music specifically, and, um, and then, yeah, it was born out of a couple of gigs at station in we give it a try you know I remember seeing ricky skaggs down there one of the early kentucky thunder shows when he the very first kentucky thunder bluegrass band about 95 96 around somewhere in there yeah, yeah. maybe later 99 it was awesome <laughs> it was great well thanks so much for your time mr bub I all right i hope it. i didn't leave too many holes in there like uh unfinished stories Welcome back to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. You just heard part two of our conversation with bass player extraordinaire Mike Bubb talking about his time uh, with the Del McCurry Band as they achieved great crossover success throughout the 1990s and into the 2000s. Uh, I don't know about you, Ty, but I am a diehard Del head. I'm a big Del McCurry fan. If you love bluegrass, you better love Del McCurry. <laughs> you got that straight. Dell, yeah. Yeah, it's great to hear uh, Mike talk about the broadening of the bluegrass fan base. I know that uh, in the 90s, that's kind of when I was coming of age and really getting more and more into bluegrass. And Dell McCurry was for um, a lot of us who were trying to find that next new voice in bluegrass. You know, we, a lot of us grew up on traditional stuff and 
the influence that the Dale McCurry band, just the different sound that they had, it was had one foot very much strongly in traditional bluegrass, but it was uh, really for the time, you know, edgier. I know Dale's got a really traditional voice, but some of the songs that these guys were deciding to do, the timing, you know, Ronnie McCurry uh, as a mandolin player myself, Ronnie McCurry's very exciting mandolin. Uh, and the fact that, you know, he mentions uh, the crossover with uh, working with uh, both Steve Earle and Fish and Colonel Bruce Hampton. And those are also groups that I enjoyed listening to um, as I was coming of age in the 90s as well. So the connection there kind of made, at the time especially, made the Del McCurry band uh, even cooler. It was kind of cool to be into bluegrass, um, even if you were into jam bands or into uh, other more, you know, alternative music at the time, uh, they bridged the gap and really opened the fan base. And so for myself, a lot of my friends, it was a great uh, connector between the two worlds. So I appreciate Mike's great insight into how that came about, the experience with Steve Earle, the experience with going on the road and um, uh, just bringing all these new people in a lot of ways to bluegrass and really setting the stage for what uh, the modern bluegrass scene has become because a lot of those jam band elements and a lot of those out of the box artists are really gaining more so in popularity. And I think you can uh, root that all back to the nineties and early two thousand when the Dale McCurry was joining forces with some of these uh, other groups that were not necessarily traditional uh, bluegrass artists. Yeah. It's interesting for me. I was a kid in the nineties. I was born in 91 so when the Dell and the Boys album oh. came out, I know. When the Dell and the Boys album came out, I can still remember it plain as day. I was only eight or nine years old when that record came out. And I had uh, been at the radio station hanging around with my dad for something. And that record had just came in in the mail. I don't even think it had uh, the official street date had dropped yet. But I was riding home with dad. And we had to stop at the cleaners. He had to pick up some sport coats or something. And he popped that CD in right before he went into the cleaners. And I can still remember sitting there and staring at the car speaker when Rob McCurry's banjo kicks off 1952 Vincent Black Lightning. And it just that song painted such a picture in my head. I'm eight or nine years old, and I've never heard a bluegrass song about a motorcycle before. So it was the coolest thing I've ever heard. I thought Del McCurry was cool just because he was cool. I didn't know that for other people it's cool because he's hanging out with Steve Earle and Fish and all these folks that at the time I'd never heard of. So as I as you grow up and you realize that, no, everybody thinks Del McCurry's cool, um, and uh, hearing about folks like Mumford & Sons telling uh, audiences that they've played in front of saying, if you think we're cool, you got to check out the Del McCurry band. We're nothing compared to them. That's cleaning it up a little bit from the way I've heard Marcus Mumford say it. But Del McCurry band still such a transcendent band. Del still a, such a leader in the bluegrass music industry, member of the Hall of Fame. And Mike Bubb had a front row seat to see him go uh, from just uh, – playing uh, the bluegrass festivals to uh, headlining shows and opening for Steve Earle and playing all these mega roots music venues in the 90s and 2000s. Fascinating to hear uh, from a man who was right there on stage when it all happened. Yeah, the McCurries had a really cool groove. They picked really great songs. They were out-of-the-box songs. They were songs that um, spoke to people that were just music fans, not just bluegrass fans. And part of that really cool groove, I must say, was Mike's fantastic bass playing. I remember in the 90s, early 2000s, I saw them play a lot, uh, both in North Carolina and Tennessee. And um, I just got to say, you know, the bass, that's that's your groove setter. And um, Mike's... Uh, playing style and his on-stage attitude was a big part of that. So, uh, you know, we've got to attribute uh, a lot of that early uh, success and that rise of the Dale McCurry band to the great bass playing of Mike Bubb. So, so glad we could have him for a doubleheader episode uh, right here in the middle of the season of Walls of Time. That's right. Yeah, when you, you said it best. When you think of the Dale McCurry band, their timing is part of what makes them so special and uh, when they were uh, uh, really on the rise to being one of the premier bands in bluegrass music, that timing was set by the bass man, Mr. Mike Bubb. Uh, another time-honored scene that I really thought was great that he brought up, talking about Hendersonville, Tennessee, the Cades Cove Club, where Bill Monroe, and he mentioned uh, Cordell and himself and the guys down there working out and 
picking tunes at the Cades Cove Club. That was a uh, historic place, uh, really in my hometown, just outside of Nashville. I got to go there and see Bill play in his later years. And it's always great when someone brings up the Cades Cove Club because uh, so many fantastic uh, people came through there, another uh, cultural institution, uh, not just there, but also the Station Inn. And I know Mike talks a little bit about his um, beginnings uh, with the Sidemen, uh, which where we got the title for this episode, Mike being the Sideman extraordinaire and helping start the Sidemen at the Station Inn, which is another uh, cultural home for this music other place that I uh, uh, grew up going to and seeing some of these guys uh, when they first started uh, as at the time I was coming of age back in the 90s. So it's really great to hear about Mike's time there. Oh, uh, be sure to check out our uh, Spotify playlist uh, with the Mike Bubb episode, and there'll be a lot of great Del McCurry Band music on there. Walls of Time podcast on Facebook, Walls of Time pod on twitter links to all those spotify playlists you can listen to us on stitcher on spotify on apple podcast and wherever you listen to your podcasts next time on walls of time bluegrass podcast it's a treat for me to get to sit down with a fellow broadcaster cindy bockham legendary bluegrass radio personality and festival mc in the north carolina area married to terry bockham great banjo man that worked with Dole Austin and Quicksilver and Boone Creek and more now leads his own band, Terry Bauckham and the Dukes of Drive. But we're not talking about Terry. We're talking about Cindy and uh, how she became one of the top radio broadcasters in uh, bluegrass music. So be sure to uh, tune into the next episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.